Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for one. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon. In a week where... Well, the conversation around cricket and COVID-19 has fired up once again. I guess it was always going to. We'll have a bit of a discussion around that off the top. But, Jeff, for the most part, you're going to be hearing from a third voice this week, an interview we've been plugging for a while, a really enjoyable chat we had a couple of weeks ago with the Australian actor and writer, William McGuinness. This week is all about William McGuinness. This is William McGuinness week. We have been taunting people a bit with this it's like it's like the game where you go to pick up someone in your car and they try to open the door and then you drive off a little bit like a couple of meters up the road and then they try to get in and you drive off a bit again you know we've been doing that oh it'll be next week it'll be next week um news has got the better of us um, current events have got the better of us but finally we've decided look bugger it we don't care about the news anymore it, it's time it's time to have one of the most enjoyable chats we've had with somebody, I think, on this show where we get so forensic about the news and, and the current cycle sometimes, but it's really nice just to pull back and say, let's just talk about life and the game and, and things in a much broader sense, a, a conversation that will be as relevant five years ago or in five years time as it is now. Yeah, I hope so. When we started doing these long interviews a few years ago now, we, we, we thought I think he appeared on one of our very first wish lists. We, we thought initially that we wouldn't talk to cricketers. We would talk to people slightly outside of the game and inquire about how they fell in love with cricket and have like those kind of sprawling chats. But it didn't quite happen. We've had a couple of them, Will Anderson and Earthboy Standout and a couple of others who, who aren't directly involved in cricket. But this is the first we, we've done for a while. And I think that's what made it all the more rewarding in that obviously Will loves the cricket but he's got so much more to say and look to an extent it's a bit of a fanboy if he's having you know watched a lot of the things he's done on television read his books and so on but um but yeah he, he really uh, embraced the chance to have a gallop and spoke and gave long answers and, and those sorts of things the, the stuff you're afforded uh, the ability to do on a podcast that you can't necessarily do on a 15 minute radio interview or a spot for tv but yeah he took full advantage and we really enjoyed it and there's also something about the voice, you know, when you've got someone's voice in your ear and I think William McGuinness has one of the great Australian voices. It, it's it's a voice that's known. It, it feels familiar. It feels kind of like home. Mm. So uh, so that'll come up very shortly. You can settle in uh, by rug up by the fireside of William McGuinness's <laughs> voice and, and get warm through the winter as it is down in Australia where I am, even if it's not where you are, Adam. Yeah, it's a blisteringly hot day here today and it's beautiful and it's like the perfect day to be playing cricket. And indeed, there is cricket being played in England today. There's a, a West Indies tour game, or should I say a, a warm-up game, intra-squad um, ahead of the first test match here on, on the 8th of July. But it's not been a good day for cricket, though, uh, on the basis that we're up to, I think now, is it 10 of the Pakistani squad who are meant to take off from Lahore for London uh, later in the week uh, for their three test matches and three T20 internationals, which are meant to start in late July. But um, 10 of 29 have been um, confirmed as having tested positive for COVID-19. Now, according to Wazim Khan, who's the chief executive of Pakistan Cricket, 
the tour's all good. It's going to proceed. Ashley Giles from uh, the ECB has, has said likewise. But as I mentioned off the top, Jeff, it, it's sort of a reminder that over the last, say, I don't know, six to eight weeks, it's all been about forward progress and about sort of exceeding expectations, things ending up being a little bit better than we thought as far mm. as when cricket would resume. And now we have to pause and think and reflect that actually this will be a long road, a complicated road, and, and you know, the testing out of Pakistan reinforces that point. Well, the virus is still going gangbusters in a lot of parts of the world, and Pakistan's mm. one of those. They'll cross 200,000 confirmed cases pretty soon. They're, they're on the doorstep of that. They've been doing, well, they've had days of 6,000 plus. They're, I think they were at about 4,000 yesterday. So it doesn't really come as a surprise that a bunch of the Pakistan players have tested positive because it, it must be so rife in the country at, at the time. Shade Afridi as well tested positive um, for it pretty recently. He's been out there fundraising and, and helping people and distributing mm. goods and hugging people the length and breadth of the country. So it was pretty well inevitable that that result would come up as well. So uh, the the good news, I guess, as far as the England Cricket Board's finances are concerned is that uh, I think nine out of the, those 10 players are, are most in, in the white ball end of things they're unlikely mm. to be in the test squad but it, it does it does make me wonder how often one of the big three countries would have been so invested in having the West Indies and Pakistan tour in a given summer but England really need it this summer yeah that's right and I think yesterday the, th- the first three players that were diagnosed uh, as having um, issued positive tests were asymptomatic and I'm not sure if that's the same this time around but yeah, it'll be helpful that the, the T20 internationals follow the test matches and they're going into a long period of quarantine upon their arrival in the UK. So it should be all okay in the end. But, I mean, Jeff, listening into the Tim Payne press conference earlier today, that's where the conversation's trending in Australia as well. We've had the outbreak in Melbourne and different parts of Australia are trending at different rates right now. I'm not as across this as you are. I know, Jeff, you've been following this very, very closely. But it does feel like when it comes to global tournaments, the, the international fixtures with Afghanistan and India, which which have already been put out there, all of the well, women's cricket as well, the Women's World Cup in New Zealand even, for that matter. Like For, for a long time there, I, I feel as though we thought we were fairly certain that would all happen now and we, we were over the worst of it due to the way um, the case numbers had fallen. But now, I mean, I'm sure CA will find a way to get the job done. Don't get me wrong. There's a long way to go until November when the, when the domestic season starts. But there is that, that pause for thought that things might not be quite as straightforward. I think a lot of it is about the tantalising nature of possibility. You know, could mm. this happen? What happens if you can't have a Boxing Day test because Melbourne's become a, a post-apocalyptic wasteland? That's not likely to happen with the way it is. You know, the way they're talking about no. an outbreak in Melbourne is very much caution first. It's very much, let's make sure we don't have an outbreak in Melbourne. So, you know, we're, we're still talking about under 30 cases a day in terms of what they've been registering here. So whether that's likely to still be a problem in, in a few months' time that seems fairly unlikely given that they've been proactive in making sure they get on top of things early and, and take early action here. But it, it does, of course, lend itself to speculation and that's pretty much the only thing keeping the sporting press going <laughs> at the moment in Australia where, we'll look, at least a couple of football codes are back. That does help give something to talk about. But as far as cricket goes, there's, there's nothing but speculation. Yeah, I saw that Perth for the Boxing Day test if we can't have crowds in Melbourne. This is, the, the drum beat has, has begun uh, there. I, I'd mentioned just before, Jeff. <laughs> can, the, can the wacker just relax a bit? Like, could they just <laughs> chill out? They're so keen. The Western Australian Cricket Association, bless them, you know, love your work, uh, love the bouncy pitches. 
you know, g- good weather, nice beaches, all the rest of it, but just just, just chill a bit. You know, like, I'm, I'm sorry there's no India test this year, but you had one last time. Just just put your feet up. I kind of take the other view that if it turns out in the unlikely, unlikely event that Melbourne won't have crowds later in the year, if it, if it goes that way, well, look, mm. maybe this is the right year to give them the grand final and the Boxing Day test on a one-time only offer. <laughs> Yeah. Have it this year when, when, when Melbourne actually can't. That might be a nice compromise model and we can get back to normal the year well, after. Look, I don't know. Would you rather watch a test at the MCG or a test at either of the Perth grounds? I think we know the answer to that. Like the MCG is a, a dire um, <laughs> graveyard for test cricket in the last 10 or 15 years at least. So I, I know where we'd rather watch the sport. Yeah, although it was, it was marginally better this year against New Zealand. Marginally. It should, it should, should be worth <laughs> uh, noting there. The women's tournament, though, Jeff, I mean... This is, a, this is a frustrating one, isn't it? Like, Elise Perry commenting yesterday uh, on this. So a month and a half ago, it felt like we were just going to have the men's World T20 cancelled and postponed rather until October next year. It seemed like the IPL would slot into the October this year and the women's tournament wouldn't be affected by that. Or maybe they would put the men's tournament followed by the women's tournament mm-hmm. given all the infrastructure uh, was already in uh, already in Australia and New Zealand and it's not too hard to move between the two countries. But if the women's tournament in New Zealand, one of the safest parts of the world right now, gets canned in order to shoehorn the men's tournament in to satisfy the previous schedule in any way, I, I, I can't come at that. I mean, that's not a reasonable thing <laughs> no. for the women to have to put up with, is it? I mean, I get that, you know, on the final word a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Izzy Westbury about the, the potential need for the English women's uh, games this year to be put on the back burner in favour of getting the men's stuff on television. But that's in the here and now, in the middle of what continues to be a COVID crisis. We're talking about in February and March in New Zealand with months to plan and, and a competition which happens once every four years. Like I think that if they have to make a choice between one or the other, it's only right the women um, have have uh, have first choice on this. I think. Well, it's only right that a fifty over World Cup still means more than a T Twenty World Cup. Like you know, yeah, sorry, sorry for for people who are really invested in their team's victory in that particular uh, competition. But the T Twenty World Cup is not that big a deal you know they, they come around about once every six months they're, they're like more often than Christmas crackers you get a T20 World Cup so look have it, have one when you have it if you have to have one twice in six months or whatever it is because you, you log jam the schedule down the road well so be it be, because no one really remembers no one notices no one cares it's a carnival thing it happens when it happens but mm. the, the 50 over World Cups are you know they, they've been they've managed to be pretty much every four years for quite a while and, and they're they're part of the, the the heartbeat of the international cricket schedule yeah, hopefully, uh, yeah, common sense prevails there. Uh, Jeff, the other uh, point of news, I suppose, in CA land is that there really is no news when it comes to the replacement for Kevin Roberts. There was a story floated, though, uh, that actually Peter Lawler broke in the Australian uh, newspaper that Andrew Strauss had been sounded out. And hmm. I have to say, my, my first instinct was correct, is that the comments are going to be fucking brutal <laughs> here. Um, uh, uh, Australian, the Australian public did not take kindly to the idea that a, that an Ashes winning captain in Andrew Strauss could, could come and uh, uh, take care of Australia. 
Australian cricket, however irrational that uh, that response might have been. It was feral in the comment section on social media, and I had a look at the bottom of Peter's story as well, and uh, they weren't having that. So if if I were Andrew Strauss, I'd want nothing to do with Cricket Australia on that basis. Never hiding to nothing. Never read the comments, especially on that website like that. <laughs> that way, madness already takes control. Like, I thought listeners to this show might think that we agree on everything. We often don't agree on things, but I very much agreed with your comments that you popped online about that, where you were basically saying like, why would Andrew Strauss consider this? What would he possibly have to gain out of it? Because he could come over, he could do a sterling job for as many years as you like. The first second that anything went wrong anywhere in the organisation, you know, like someone, yeah, Steve Smith leaves his spikes at home and it would be like Strauss's head, Heads must roll, you know. Conspiracy, he's got to go. Conspiracy. He's got to go. Um, Australians <laughs> would not come at particularly, particularly being the guy who came to Australia and beat Australia over here um, f- far too recently for the liking of most Australian supporters. You know, <laughs> anyone who watched that series in 2010 11 remembers it. So, yeah, it would be a, a horrible move for him. Why would he expose himself to it when he could um, just, just kick back in England, be the director of cricket or whatever his title is officially over there and just have a nice jolly old time being respected and revered wherever he goes. Jeff, before we move into some nerd pledge and then subsequently William McGuinness, we said a couple of weeks back that we would continue talking about Black Lives Matter uh, in the context of cricket and there was a phenomenal column uh, this week in The Guardian by Barney Roney which I think is just worth touching on it was about the rebel tours that took place in South Africa during the 80s and specifically uh, the way in which England cricketers that went on those tours were able to so seamlessly integrate back into the main frame and I hadn't really thought about it too much before, I must say, Jeff. I mean, I knew that had been the case with players such as Mike Gadding, who went on to, you know, obviously captain England and had taken a number of senior roles in the administration thereafter, and he's still evidently uh, formally employed by them at the moment. But there are so many people who uh, took that option to go to South Africa in the 80s for a number of reasons, but the consequences just weren't there. And it's not a conversation that we've that we've really had. And it's illustrative of, again, how historically our, our game has been well short of the mark. Well, they may have had a number of reasons to go, but those reasons were all money. Like they were all of the individually numbered pounds that they got paid in order to go on tour. And, and that's what Barney's writing about. It, it's in the context of Ashley Gray's recent book uh, about the Caribbean cricketers who also went on a rebel tour and the way that a lot of them were shunned and and, uh, treated as outcasts when they got back to the Caribbean because they were seen to have gone and taken blood money. They had a a kind of alibi of of sorts to say that they were missionaries. They were going over there to make white racist South African audiences watch and appreciate the sporting talents of black athletes. But the English teams who went didn't have that defence. They were there to make money. That's what they were there for. And nobody's really willing to to step out against them because they're esteemed figures in English cricket. And that's what Barney's writing about. We, he says out of the 30 rebel tourists, there were 12 welcomed back into the England test team after that, and eight of them became England selectors or England coaches. Um, David Graveney is the, the most prominent recent example who was um, England's chairman of selectors only a handful of years after coming back from a a rebel tour to South Africa and that's a situation where they're they're only going there 
to cash in while that South African apartheid regime was, you know, mask off, vicious, violent, racist in the way it was structuring things in that country. So it is extremely relevant that that doesn't get talked about with more strength than it has and, and that the English game just says, oh, well, carry on. Um, that was an awkward little period, wasn't it? Let's all forget about it. Yeah, and Jeff, even last night here in, in the Premier League, and it reminded me of cricket as well, there was a banner flying above the Burnley Man City game which read, uh, White Lives Matter, which of course we know exactly what that is and exactly what the, the, the people in question are trying to do and undermine uh, the campaign that's been uh, so forceful over the last few weeks. But the reason it reminded me of cricket was that it was only last year, Jeff, that the It's OK to be White banner was unfurled at a Big Bash game over in Perth, a Cricket Australia venue. And there was no ban for the people in question. They, In theory, they could have rocked up at the Women's Big Bash game the next day. Uh, I remember writing at the time that they, they were very reluctant to do anything other than kick them out and give them, I think it was described as a first and final warning. So, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it's not as though Cricket Australia weren't told time and time again, this is a white supremacist trope that's yep. being put out there in a CA venue. This isn't just sort of some run of the mill. This is exactly what it is, but yep. they weren't for budging. They, they, they kicked it off the process and um, said that it was the responsibility of everyone kind of but them. <laughs> and, and again, as I say, that these guys could have walked straight back into a Cricket Australia venue the next day. Now, I'm not accusing CA of being racist, but it's emblematic of where we, we need to be vigilant um, as a sport uh, and, and need to sort of use past examples of where it's gone horribly wrong. But it's also an instance of not wanting to have to do more than the bare minimum that okay well we kicked them out we told them not to do it again well all right well what does that actually achieve you know that 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 doesn't get you anywhere as, as far as dealing with those people and the kind of things we're talking about with the rebel tourists so it was a similar thing of like oh well don't do it again <laughs> you know but aside from that mm. everything's forgotten and and welcome back and i think it's telling that for something that was so long ago it was still notable that Barney Rone actually wrote about it. Like people don't really write forcefully about this because they don't want to be seen to be stepping on toes. They 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 don't want to annoy people in their industry, and on it goes. When there's such a small pool of people, then everybody within that pool is trying not to. Uh, irritate each other rather than worrying about whether they're actually doing the right thing or not and, and that's what sets up the, the the quote that really jumped out at me in his piece was that it sets up what he called a culture of exclusion when nobody's actually banging on the door to come in you, you, when when black cricketers and black coaches in the uk are not even wanting to be involved with the game or, or black athletes aren't wanting to be cricketers because cricket hasn't set itself up as, as a game that welcomes people. Well said, Jeff, and well written, Barney Renee. And Jeff, with that heavy part of the show out of the way, to our favourite part of the show, time for... Well, I, I'm, I'm just going to try to not wake everybody up in the house here because we're doing this at about one in the morning, but it's Nerd Pledge. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice, I'll, nicely I'll, adjusted. There's an expectation of sorts there, Jeff, in terms of how you start, how we do this each week. Uh, so, I'll sing right, you to so, sleep. Look, it's, it's the game of nerds. It's the game of pledges. <laughs> it's the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents. And that number relates to cricket in a 
a way that we have to deduce with no hints. Well, sometimes with hints, but uh, oftentimes with no <laughs> hints. The first number on our Nerd Pledge slate this week is from Blake Corbett. Uh, thank you very much for playing the game, Blake, with a generous pledge as well, $6.35. And when I saw 6.35 come through uh, on the sheet, immediately it struck me like lightning in both eyes, like like the flashing lights of Revolver Nightclub at four in the morning. I thought it has to be Stephen O'Keefe. Twice, six for 35 in both innings in the first test in Pune in 2017. Was it Australia's first win in a test match in India since 2004? Am I remembering that correctly? It was, yeah, uh, it like, was a long time anyway. Yeah, since the prehistoric, prehistoric era or something like that. It was, um, it was thank you. To begin, Blake, that's very kind of you. That that was a, a yeah, really a really enjoyable uh, day. I, I just arrived uh, from uh, the other side of the world uh, and was straight into the commentary box. My first stint was three wickets in Steve O'Keefe's first over after the lunch break. So it was all it was all happening uh, as they say. Um, so I'll, I'll never forget that. But yeah, six for thirty-five in both innings. I remember just like walking over to the press conference with him. I don't quite know how this happened, but we were with Steve and I think Pete Lawler as well, either to or from the presser um, after he finished and took his 12 for 70 as match figures and him like giving the big thumbs up to all the fans who wanted photos and all the rest of it so I guess uh, after what had been a pretty long journey in first class cricket and a couple of failed attempts not failed attempts but never having really gotten a, a proper opportunity for Australia um, stepping out on, on that occasion and, and bowling Australia to victory in a famous win uh, that it was uh, yeah it was it was a lovely moment and a great memory of being on tour with the Australian team six for 35 that's the only thing it can be surely Adam only, only other, one other thing that, that jumped out at me, and you'll like this, Jeff. I know you followed Stuart Broad's batting very closely uh, over the years. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't say this in a way, come to think of it, because I know this is actually a stat you've got on your, your hard drive somewhere, um, that um, Stuart Broad uh, has the record in Test cricket for the most amount of runs at number 10, which is 635. He also has the most amount of runs at number 9, would you believe, with 1,295. So 6.35 also is a Stuart Broad batting stat. If you're wondering, Murley is number number 11's highest run scorer. He has 623. What a gun. The reason I know you know that, Jeff, is because you've, you've been monitoring number six for a long time. So long. Asad Shafiq at number six, still coming in <laughs> second behind Stephen Roger War. I'm like, come on, just give him a few more, just a few more innings there. Um, and also the number of sixes at each position. Trent Bolt has the record for number 11. Tim Southey, I think, has the record for number <laughs> 10, 9, and maybe 8 as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's pretty much like streaked to the field in in the rest of it so 635 at 10 and then the uh, the 1295 at number 9 well, he must have made most of those in that one innings I had a long conversation with Andrew Sampson the Stato once about whether Stuart Broad was the worst batsman to ever make 100 I think he went with Jermaine Lawson the, the West Indies quick he thought might have been mm. the worst to make a test 100 because because Broad was a, a decent batsman at one stage yeah on the evidence of what I've seen Yassir Shah's on the podium Oh, by now. I've, yeah. seen, I've seen Yassir Shah play some abysmal shots and, some, <laughs> and, and, and and I've seen Yassir Shah look like he's the number 12 yep. and then he obviously made that lovely 100 actually that late last year. He hadn't got the 100 by the time I had this, no. this conversation True. with Andrew. So uh, thank you, Blake Corbett. That's where we're going for 6.35. Harrison Payne is next on our short list. We're just doing a short segment today, so uh, stay with us. 3.99 from Harrison Payne. Um, three. 99 Adam anything I've got a few bits and pieces but I'll, I'll get us rolling with Chris Rogers being the 399th Australian men's test cricketer 
Okay, uh, solid. Of course, played 25 tests for Australia, made 500. So we'll start there. What do you reckon? I was thinking if we're going to have a link of games that Adam has commentated on radio, 399 <laughs> is the score Australia made in Jamaica when Steve Smith got out for 199 league before wicket. Um, and, and I know that you were over there working on that series at the time. And calling that ball too, I was so pumped up. Had the camera ready, you know, to record the the call of the Smith double hundred. I'm, I'm not too I'm not too proud to say that was the case. And then, of course, he he, he fell leg before. And it was a DRS decision. It was one of those ones where it was like. 51% of the ball was clipping or whatever the minimum requirement uh, that it was and, and Smith mm. trudged off. But yes, 399. The other thing I like about that number and that test summer in the West Indies was that only seven times in test cricket, 399 has been made by a team. And it happened twice in the space of two months in the Caribbean. So um, Smith made that 399 at Sabina Park in June. Well, two months earlier, when England were in the West Indies, uh, mm-hmm. that was also a score made in that test series, 399. So two out of seven. So 145 years or whatever it is of, of test cricket and, and, and seven times in total, but two in the space of two months, which is quirky enough for me. All right. The other thing I've got is that 399 was the score in the one-day international when a player did get to a double hundred, Fakhar Zaman, who's one of the Pakistan players who tested positive for COVID-19 <laughs> this week, made his double hundred against Zimbabwe. He was batting with Imam Ulhaq and they almost became the first opening partnership to bat through an entire one-day international. They got through ah. 42 overs and I was riding this game. I was like, come on. <laughs> you know, I want to see this. <laughs> like any anything slightly random or weird, I definitely want to be there for it. Um, they put on an opening partnership of 304 and then Imam managed to get himself out in the 42nd over. Just outrageous. Asif Ali came in and hit 50 off 22 balls. So the score ended up... Up one for 399 by the time the 50 overs uh, came to an end. And Fakhar beat the Pakistan record in a one-day international of 194 runs by Saeed Anwar, which we've talked about many times on Nerd Pledge before. So there were so many Nerd Pledge areas this brought together with the 399 for Harrison Payne. I reckon that's where it's going. One favourite overtaking another, Fakazam and Said Amwa. We love them on the final word. Thank you, Harrison Payne, for 399. And last today, Jeff, last but certainly not least, we've got 434 from Peter Roberts. Another number we, we have seen before, but but we have had fun with before as well. There are, there are multiple ways we can take it. Look, 434 obviously gets talked about as the score that Australia made in a one day game that. South Africa ran down but it's also maybe been overshadowed unfairly because 434 was the number of test wickets that Kapil Dev took Mm. which was the world record for a very long time you had that world record tussle where both them had it and then and and then Hadley had it and then Kapil Dev went past Richard Hadley and it stayed there for a long time until Courtney Walsh beat the record and, and went on to 500 plus, 519, I think, test wickets. Yep. So 434, I reckon, is Kapil Dev. Yeah, it probably is. And I, I like where you're going with that. The other 434 that I came up with is that uh, the first time it was made in test cricket, actually. So that was at the Oval in 1886. So four years after the famous Oval test match where Australia win, the, the tables were turned by then and we're a couple of Ashes series on by that point because I was playing them far more frequently. But um, England made 434 in the first innings against Australia in that test match. 
uh, Grace WG made 170 opening the batting. England ended up winning by an innings and 217 runs to sweep Australia 3-zip. And I should note as well that George Lohman uh, took 12 wickets in the match, including 7 for 36 from 30.2 overs in the first dig on the way to bowling out Australia for 68 in 60 overs. I mean, I'm, in a way, I kind of admire the fact that Australia were all out for 68 but managed to survive for 60 overs. So that is another option for 434 either way. Thank you ever so much, Peter Roberts. And indeed, uh, thank you to Harrison Payne and Blake Corbett. Jeff, before we round it off, we've got just a couple we'll revisit. One, actually, we'll re- revisit one. We'll come back to the other one next week. I'm mindful we should get to William McGuinness sooner rather than later. We have promised him for that long. Damien McLean uh, dropped us a note during the week. We uh, said that his 361 uh, may have been Damien Fleming's cap number or Peter May's cap number. It might have been Daniel Vittori's uh, test wicket haul. He said it's none of those things. He thanked us for reading out his nerd pledge on the previous episode and said that he didn't want to give us a hint and he enjoyed the fact that we were there with Damien Fleming, but his actual number was something he witnessed last year after he made a last-minute decision to travel to the Adelaide Test Match to watch our live show. So he thanks us for um, for that and for calling the shots and whatever, everything else we've been doing in recent times. But, Jeff, the clue is 361 as it relates to what happened at the Adelaide Test Match last year. Yes, and 361 in the Adelaide Test last year was the partnership between David Warner and Manus Labaskachny for the second wicket when they broke a lot of records. So I think you were counting them down as as the match went on. You were you were doing the stato work, being Andrew Sampson for for SEN at the time. <laughs> but when Dave Warner went on to the triple hundred, uh, he managed to put on a, a triple hundred partnership with Manus as well in in the summer that made Manus. And it, it feels like it's been so long since we saw him bat that I I, I just want like. Is, is he actually that good? Is he going to continue to be that good? I, I, I need to see what happens next because it will have been a year by the time he bats in a test match again. Yeah, that's right. It's quite weird. I feel kind of for the older players, especially like take Tim Payne, who is at the back end of his career, not playing for so long. Jimmy Anderson's the other one. I mean, he hasn't bowled since, I guess, August last year in any meaningful game in England. Of course, played a... It feels like a year and a half since he bowled. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It does, doesn't it? It's like, it's kind of like you get to the start of your career, you play all this cricket, you're playing three formats, domestic cricket, you're traveling around the world. At the very end, once you've retired from a couple of formats, it's like you're a a prize fighter. You're just wheeled out to defend your title and then and that's it so I suppose that'll be the case when Jimmy plays against the West Indies in a couple of weeks but Jeff uh, uh, that's the end of their pledge so thank you to Damien for getting in touch and I'm glad we were able to clear that up if you would like to set us a nerd pledge and see if we can solve it you go to patron.com slash the final word Patron is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You sign up, you put in the number, and we will mark it down on our list that never changes, and we'll try to work out what it is when that number comes around. And in doing so, you help us keep making the show. So it's it's a real double bonus. Thank you to everybody who's supported us through the last few months. It's been amazing. Let's take a quick breather, and then we'll be into our feature interview. Jeff, with it coming to the end of another month, well, nearly at the end of another month, it's time for another edition of the greatest cricket magazine in the world, Wisden Cricket Monthly. How often does it come out, Adam? Well, funny you ask that. We've had some 
trials and tribulations around this in the past, but I'm reliably mm. informed it comes out once each calendar month. So there's 12 really? editions per year. I said 13 editions on an earlier episode and made a bit it, of a blue there, but 12 is it, editions is of it a, WCM. It, that was a lunar calendar, Wisdom Cricket lunar calendar monthly, as opposed to I, I, the, I had these visions of a summer edition, but it seems as though I might have conflated that with another publication. Mm. But there are indeed 12 <laughs> editions of Wisdom Cricket monthly per, per year. And one so, of them is coming being out a separate this month. <laughs> summer, of course, is made up of the three months that it contains and an extra month of, of just good vibes that just happens. Just to celebrate the, the solstice. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's a nice thing. Uh, one of the joys of, of our work, Jeff, is often that we get to celebrate the summer solstice um, you know, twice, twice a year, a year. yeah, uh, and, and we, we obviously it was a couple. Yeah, we had a couple of days ago here, and it was a, a lovely night with the sun uh, into our yard for a long time into it. But uh, um, it must mean that it's bitterly cold there right now. All the more reason, uh, Jeff, yep. to, to tuck into some nourishing. Brilliant cricket writing. Uh, I said it's the best cricket mag in the world. Uh, their standards are exemplary. Uh, the artwork on the front this week, this month. The artwork on the-, <laughs> the artwork on the month. The artwork on the month of the front this week. The artwork on the front this week is going to be the same as for the next three weeks because it's a monthly magazine. <laughs> <laughs> It was inevitable I was going to slip there, wasn't it, after all the lead-up. Uh, Mo and Ali's on the front, though, Jeff, because they've, uh, they've got hold of the, well, I suppose I was going to call him the discarded England all-rounder as far as Test cricket's concerned, but he is back in, in the squad after mm. a year away. I mean, he was dropped after the Edgbaston Test last year, and he, he sort of had a period of time when he was away from Red Bull cricket altogether. But uh, I think it's a, yeah, it's an exciting time for Wisdom to have hold of uh, have hold of Moeen to talk to him about a number of things. Uh, Taha Hashim has done that interview. He's a, a very exciting young cricket writer. He's the right man for the job there, and he's been able to um, you know, get into a, a whole bunch of stuff with Moeen about um, his performances, diversity in the England dressing room, and why sport and politics do mix, which has been an issue for, for Moeen in the past when he's made statements and there's been pushback. But right now, uh, I expect that Moeen won't be shy about saying what he thinks. Well, if pretty much if you don't like Moeen Ali, it reflects poorly on you because he's just one of the nicest men in the game mm. and, and he's got a brain and he uses it and, and he tries to, to to do his best to uh, make that work out for the best for the people around him. So I think he's a very admirable cricketer. He's uh, obviously struggled against Australia in the past so playing in a summer when Australia will not be there will be advantageous for him but it, it's nice that he's he gets that opportunity because in that the start of that Ashes summer last year, he just looked bewildered and broken as a test cricketer. He looked like mm. he didn't want to be there. Um, and so if he does want to be there, he, he brings so much enthusiasm and, and joy to the game with the way he goes about it. So uh, well worth checking in on that read to, to see where he's at and what he can do in the next few months. Before going on with a couple of other bits and pieces in the mag, it's bit.ly forward slash WCM final to get our deal with the final word. Our association with Wisdom Cricket Monthly means that just by going to that link, no offer code required, bit.ly forward slash WCM final gets you six editions of the magazine for six pounds, which is roughly 10 bucks, give or take, uh, in the Australian currency, probably about eight US dollars if that's where you are. I'm not sure what that works out to be in rupees or um, I'm sure someone will. But the point is, is that you're on that link and it'll do the currency conversion for you. You don't have to think about What is about it that. in rand, Adam? What's well, the yeah, rand? Well, uh, what's the rand to the pound? About 11 or something like that. So you'll get your value for money regardless, such as the feature that, they've, that they have monthly in association with CrickViz, who are the world's leading cricket analytics company. They look at the, the, the MVP 
of test cricket in the 21st century. So I suppose what they've done in there is gone through and, and, and worked out who's been the most valuable player as far as the data is concerned. Always interesting when they run the rule over those sorts of Sorry, things. Sorry, is that the most valuable player in pounds or in <laughs> rand or in US dollars? Or uh... Well, I, I suspect if it's going to... I'm going to take a punt that it, that's going to be a player whose currency is in rupees. Surely uh, the most valuable player of the 21st century so far has been Virat Kohli. And I only say that because to say anyone else but Virat means that your Twitter mentions get very nasty indeed. What, uh, what's six pounds in Colombian pesos, Adam? <laughs> if, if, say, someone in Colombia wants to sign up, if someone in Bogota is keen to get WCM uh, digitally delivered to them, what's it going to cost them? I reckon it's going to cost them less than it will in East Caribbean dollars, which is okay. one of those coins that you get. I know, you, Jeff, you've been over there as well. They, yeah. they have EC dollars in, in, a, in a couple of different countries. I think three or four of them use that currency, shared currency, and I have all. The, and they look like British mm. currency. So I've got all these coins sitting in my wallet, and from time to time, I'll hand one over over here, and I'll be told quickly that sorry, mate, that's not that's not ten pence. That's a <laughs> that's a different country's currency. So piss off. EC. Can you can you buy an EA Sports game with EC currency? I mean, there are so many questions. I have. I've just looked this up. Actually, six pounds is uh, twenty seven thousand. 842 Colombian pesos. Um, <laughs> the, the thing I like about the peso as a as a currency, because a lot of Spanish-speaking countries use the peso, you know, Argentina, uh, pretty much anywhere in South America uses a peso, aside from Brazil. Peso just means weight. Pesar is the verb that means to weigh. So un peso is like a weight, like when you'd set up the scales and, and try to sell your gold to somebody and they put the weights on the other side. So you're just like, give me a weight. Give me 20 weights. Give me 80 weights. Give me 27,842 weights to equal six pounds. Um, maybe a pound just means a weight as well because you can buy pounds of things. I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about these things. I'm just trying to think them through. Anyway, go and buy Wisdom Cricket Monthly. That's, that's the... That's the <laughs> real point of this. <laughs> you get all sorts of knowledge about, for example, Brazil's currency not being the same as other South American countries, what peso means. It's, it's all on the final word. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, though, obviously we've mentioned there's Test Cricket coming up in England uh, this month or next month in the month of July, mm. um, where, where, where the next Wisdom Cricket Monthly will come out because we'll be one month on. Therefore, there'll be another edition of the magazine if you're following. Oh, um, so next month, so there'll be another one next month. Another one next month. Okay, so one like month a totally different now, one. At the end of July, there'll be a new edition of Wisdom. Be whole month, so they have to make a not. new one every month. It's every a lot of work. Time. Beggar's belief. It's a lot of work. By then, England will have played the West Indies, but now it, it's, it constitutes a preview. Uh, okay. And in there, you'll hear a number of different Caribbean voices on the challenges they face in their region uh, before John Stern, the editor-at-large, considers the effect of playing cricket behind closed doors and what effect that could have on the action. You've got Zaffa Ansari, former England and Surrey player, uh, returning to the magazine as a columnist. Elizabeth Ammon uh, looks at whether the global pandemic could spell the end of 18 first-class counties. Let's hope not. Mark Ramprakash talks about his compelling career and Jack Russell puts on his selector's hat to pick his all-time Gloucestershire 11. Bit.ly forward slash WCM final. Six editions, six pounds, $10, 27,000 <laughs> Colombian pesos. That is the equation. It's all there right now. The link will be in the show notes. Jeff, that's got to be it, doesn't it? Ah, uh, Gloucestershire, the county I could never forget. Uh, g'day, this is Will Anderson, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. 
This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and we're very pleased to have on the show today a man of many talents. Uh, you'd know him as an actor, you'd know him as an author, you also know him as a guest on The Final Word. It's William McInnes. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Al Cock. Lovely to be with you both. I, I've got to say, um, just to start off, I was surprised. I don't think I've ever been addressed as Old Cock in an email before. And, and when you replied to my initial um, invitation to be on the show, that's what you led with. I thought it was a strong opening. Well, yes. I mean, I don't know why I say it. My, my dad used to say it, and I started saying it about five years after he died for some reason. I don't know. It's sort of all right. I mean, it just becomes a habit after a while. But, I mean, some people. I did a stint. <laughs> on um, ABC Radio up in Brisbane, which was one of the weirdest two weeks of my life. It was, I don't know, it was such a strange place. It wasn't a very happy workplace. They were nice people, but they were all, I think they were waiting on renewals of contracts and stuff. I mean, man, that was, a, it was like a really bad reality TV show. But I said it on air a couple of times, and I remember one woman called Pam from Balmain rang up and saying, I find him obscene in an undergraduate sort of a way. So I made sure I said it about 20 times in 10 minutes. <laughs> it's just for Pam from Balmain. <laughs> William, uh, had a baby recently, as we talked about off air just before, and um, as, a, as a consequence, I've been meaning to read Fatherhood and got around to listening to the audiobook this weekend ahead of, ahead of talking to you. I thought there was a timely um, oh moment God. to take that in and listening to your voice at 1.4 speed for the, for the course of the weekend while wrangling a, a three-month-old's been been quite enjoyable but this morning when finishing it off I, I think you'll be pleased to know that as I was in the last oh, perhaps the last 10 or so pages of the actual physical book so right at the end of the audio file my baby Winnie not only not only shat through her nappy but shat through her nappy all over her all over me all over my leg and all over the bed all in one powerful Ugh. thrust and um, I mean, uh, 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 and for, for my part, I mean, all I could do was be deeply proud of her and, and not only laugh, but like give her an even tighter cuddle than I normally would. And she was thrilled as well, <laughs> laughing her head off. And um, I, I think that, um, yeah, it was a nice way to cap what was a kind of a really lovely experience listening to you talk about fatherhood for the whole weekend. <laughs> well, I, it's great that I can give people the shits uh, in an entertaining way. This is reminiscent of Dean Jones' uh, epic uh, batting performance in, uh, in India that time. Uh, yeah, I can remember my son, who's a he's a he's actually a, he played grade premier cricket, uh, so he's a pretty handy cricketer. Uh, but when he was a baby, I was so impressed when I was changing his nappies, uh, and he just did that that weird sort of look babies get in their eyes, where they're just sort of looking, and you think they're either just staring or they're thinking about some epic thought. And he pissed, and he pissed right over his head, and I went, yeah. And I said, don't peak too early. And his kids go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> And they're a lot of fun. The babies are never bad news. They're such lovely things. So congratulations. Thank you. It's the best. It really, truly is the best. We, yeah. we've, uh, we've decked her out in her summer clothes for the first day today as well. By that, I mean it's, oh, great. Uh, it's got some sort of singlet on. It's about 26 degrees. It's glorious outside. So um, uh, we'll, we'll enjoy the backyard later. But, yeah, every minute's been... It's a funny thing, been. you know, because when I was playing cricket... Uh, and it was just like for subbies. It was just the last sort of um, oh, stint I had. I played for about five years, and I played at a couple of clubs, but I was playing for Yarraville Fourths, and we got some of the kids to come along, some of our kids, and they would have been about oh, 11, 12, like the final last year of uh, like primary school before they go off to high school. They have to play for you know, school so they can't play on Saturdays. Um, 
and they were so nervous. Clem, my son, was so nervous. He said, will, will I be all right? And I said, you'll be fine, don't worry. He said, oh, I don't want to play with the men, Dan. I'm a bit worried. And I said, no, you'll be right, don't worry. And it took him about four overs to work out that all us crocs just stayed in the, you know, in the slips and the kids were running around the boundary. <laughs> I didn't want to come back next week. <laughs> Um, William, we wanted to get you on the show because you've got these links to cricket. You've written a book about cricket and so on. Initially, I wanted to find out from you what part does the game play in your life? You know, what did it mean to you earlier in your life? What does it mean to you now? What What is cricket to you, I guess? Oh, I love cricket. I've always loved cricket. I just grew up with it. You know, I got the Pakistani five-star special in the Christmas stocking and you had to sort of put the linseed oil on it and my father said, you just hammer in the stumps and I hammered it on the face. You know what that bloody you handle? You know, like when the days of father used to yell. <laughs> Jeez, I can't know what you bloody do. Look at you've ruined it. <laughs> and then he said, because the stumps made a little dint on the, on the bat. And he said, oh, that's not bad. Look, look, crescent moons. The Pakistanis would be happy with that. I, I, I didn't know what he was talking about. And, you know, that great scene where um, your fathers want to take a, a photo of their son holding the bat. And a part of you, you know, when you do that, is you're thinking, now, when he's about 27 and he's got a, you know, one of the cricket biographies out, like, you know, William McGuinness, innings over, and there's usually a photo on the cover of staring off into the distance with your baggy green on or something like that, or pensively, and then they have the photo that's taken when you're about six or seven and and the, the photos, the first of the photos, even at an early age, you could see him stance was didn't change at all. You know, I can remember my father say, you can't muck around with this, just do it. <laughs> but uh, I was brought up with cricket. I was brought up playing it and watching it. And, you know, you'd play it in the backyard by yourself after school when, you know, my I wrote my first book about this barbecue my father built, <laughs> which was like some great big pagan temple. And, you know, it was, a, it was like the Bismarck on full attack. It smoked so much, you know. But I'd throw a golf ball against it and it'd just shoot right back. And this was in 75, the summer of 75, when I was, uh, oh, I was 11. Uh, and uh, the West Indies were out. And I just spent hours, hours with a, with a broken cricket bat. And I just took the, the neck, you know, was there. The, was, the neck had gone, the handle had gone, the cradle. And I just sort of play with this. And for some reason, I loved being Alan Turner. And I'd bat left-handed because I could edge like Alan Turner. You know, it was great. Uh, and I remember my, I threw the, the ball against the, um, the barbecue. And it, like any bowler, it'll soon sort you yeah, It sort of hit me on the nose. And I thought, oh, that's no good. And I sort of cried a bit. Then I got a my sister's motorbike helmet, she had a Vespa, and then it was fantastic. It was just like, I sort of, this is 75, right? I beat, you know, Tony Gregg in that silly sort of white crash helmet he used to wear in World Series cricket. <laughs> and then it hit me again, and I put a, I thought, I know what I'll do. So I got a bucket, a plastic bucket, and I just sort of poked some holes in it and cut two little slits, and I put a beanie and a tea towel around, and it sat in my head, and I just would throw, throw the ball at the, at the, uh, the barbecue, it had come back and I could sort of bunt it. You know, I, didn't even, I just didn't use the bat after a while. And I remember just, this is fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, oh, is, is that one for four? And my father, I just heard this, what are you doing? I just heard this, I turned around and you couldn't really see. What are you doing? It was my father 
I said, I'm playing cricket. You know, he must have sounded like a pubescent Darth Vader, you know, with his bucket. And the old man says, you've got a bucket on your head. You've got a bucket on your head. What are you doing? What are you doing? I said, what are, you know, it's a barbecue, Dad. You know, you know it hurts me when, when the ball hits me. What are you bloody doing with the barbecue? I said, I'm throwing uh, golf balls at the barbecue. And he said, what? I said, well, Don Bradman threw barbecues <laughs> at a water tank. <laughs> What that said, bloody Don Bradman would have eaten that bloody barbecue alive. And he went, listen, don't worry about Don Bradman. Don Bradman doesn't like people like us, all right? So we're throwing the ball. And then he goes, that ball doesn't hurt you. I said, no, Dad, it does not. And I shook my bucket. And he said, Christ alive. He said, go over there, will you? I didn't know where over there was, so I was headed off in a direction. And I felt this golf ball hit my bucket. And the old man goes, did that hurt? <laughs> I said, no, Dad, it did not. And he went, bugger me. And for half an hour, he was just telling me to walk around and he was throwing golf balls at my head. <laughs> my mother comes over, she says, where's my bucket? And the old man just runs past me. He says, I'm up to the shed. He said, sorry, son, you've got to handle this one on your own. But it was that sort of crazy fun shit, you know, that was just delightful. And, you know, watching Ian Chappell, who's my favourite cricketer, you know, when you really sort of got into it and you know all that fidgety stance he I mean you look at him now and you look at someone like Margaret Marnus Lubbershane or Steve Smith and they just look like something from One Flower's the Cuckoo's Nest you know they're so eccentric the way they bat but my mum was always saying oh that boy Chapel, he needs to have a good bath <laughs> he's no 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 he doesn't wash himself properly if he's always touching himself there and my old man said no love no love he's thinking Riz he's thinking He's thinking. You see, he's taking time to think. He said, he's playing with himself. He's thinking, love. He's thinking. And I'm thinking, okay, so obviously what you do when you start playing cricket, you behave like the uh, your favourite player. So, you know, you sort of, you know, you start patting your groin like you were trying to put out a fire. And the old man comes up and says, mate, don't do that. You'll get arrested if you behave like that. It's all right for you, Chapel. It's not for you. Okay. It was all that great fun stuff. Yeah, they seem like such strong sort of uh, enduring, like when you talked before about knocking the bat in, knocking the stumps in rather with the wrong side of the bat rather than the handle. I can feel that that bollocking I would have caught from my dad at age four or five doing precisely the same thing. I can see the dints in my first cricket bat um, as a consequence. And I mean, I think we're probably going to end up um, with a strong flavour of fatherhood in this conversation, just come to think of it. But that, that idea that your dad, you know, would have had cricket passed down to him and in turn you passed it down through to your kids and so on. There's that generational thing about cricket, which seems to be so strong. Oh, well, it's a, it's, it's a great guy. My old man wasn't, he wasn't very good at cricket. Football was more his go. But it was such a great sport. He always said it's like life, you know, it's the best game for life because you think you're doing nothing and then out of the blue something happens and you've just got to, you know, you've got to be there. I mean, I can remember playing cricket and sort of half thinking when you were fielding that I don't want the ball to come to me because I'll muck it up, you know. And that weird thing when you're wait out, you know, out in the outfield, even as playing as an adult... And the ball would come to you, and it would come closer and closer. And you think, I don't want to muck this up. It was it's a it's a terrific, it's a just terrific game. And he'd work people out too. The old man would say, if you you think nothing happens, I mean, for most people, when they go go for a drive and they see a, a game of subbies on, and it, and I can remember my daughter saying, what are they doing when she was little? 
And I said, oh, they're playing cricket. And she says, they're just standing there. And I said, no, something will happen soon. <laughs> and we were at an intersection. We were all looking. Nothing happened. <laughs> These guys were sort of standing there, you know, maybe waving a, you know, a fly away or picking their nose or playing, you know, adjusting themselves. And, you know, and she said, is that playing cricket? I said, yep, that's it. Cricket is when you hit a ball out of the middle of the bat. And you don't have to be a great stylist or a great player. But when that happens, it's, it connects you. You know, you know what it feels like. Um, and it's just terrific. You know, I, I used to sort of think I was a, you know, someone asked me, I did this address with Tim Lane at the, at the MCC, at the, the membership for Toast to Cricket. And I said, um, you know, if someone asked me, how would you describe yourself? And I said, well, I was a crafty swing bowler and a hard-hitting lower uh, order batsman, which basically meant I was gun barrel straight and I went to tonk, you know. But um, it was just brilliant, and I just loved when you'd get it. When you'd get onto one, it was a great feel. It was a beautiful feeling, and that uh, I don't know. It's the great thing when you, you know, in COVID and lockdown, I watched way too many old cricket videos. I mean, I, can't, I lost the number of times. I, listen, I've watched uh, Matthew Hayden, Power and Arrogance. You know, that goes. <laughs> it's just him monstering people. Uh, and you just think, oh yeah, and you hear that sound, and that that that, that there's that Nathan Astle plays a shot, which is so beautiful, and Damien Martin plays a cover drive, and it's just such a beautiful sound, you know. And you think, man, it's they're just jets, and it just and honestly, you know, obviously, I don't even exist in the same universe as those guys, but I watch them, and I remember getting onto one and tonking it and the feeling just like that sweet shot you know you, that you you played and you hardly even felt the ball hit the bat you know I think I've played cricket in almost every state really at, at, a, at a subby level and you know always had great times do you know William West do you guys no he's a sports photographer you know I played with him at Emerald Hill that was a, that was just one of the all time great eclectic group of people you know there was a couple of scientists Builders, uh, Willie was a photographer. Me, uh, another guy from a crew. I was doing this television show called Blue Healers at the time, so he was a second. He came and played. Billy Walsh, who was the drummer for the Cosmic Psychos, he played. <laughs> uh, it was so much fun, you know. It was just, you know, you. you it was weird because you know, the kids were quite young when I was playing there, and it was like a real. Like it was the last of me time in a mm. way. It's interesting what you're talking about with that feeling of, of connecting a shot. There's something about timing that's so compelling no matter what the context is. You know, the timing of the the stars lining up in the sky in a certain array or, or the timing of events in your life, that the, the right thing happening at just the right time and how satisfying that is to the human brain. And then I guess the feeling is being part of that when you actually physically perform that action and you feel that you've you've connected at the perfect millisecond of that contact you know that that's that's like feeling like being part of something much more powerful than yourself yeah i mean that's 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 that you can feel it in so many ways and it's just a visceral feeling because it's a physical feeling you know that's great you really it just it's one of those things that you just store for that inward eye that you keep with you um, and I look just so and it's, it's the other thing, great thing about cricket is when you share something with someone or something comes off like this guy 
I mean, you know, he couldn't. He was always he, he'd sort of, you know, do the crocodile catch. And I just said to him, and he was, we were all pretty hopeless. I said, mate, don't do that. Just hold it, cup it. And he went, all right. And uh, he was so happy when he when he caught a highball, like a some guy skied something, and he caught it. And the look on his face when he caught it, it was just fantastic. And he, you know, he was a draftsman. And he would have been about oh, 20, late 20s, early 30s. And he'd just done this simple thing and he was so happy. And we, we got pasted, we weren't that great. But to see him do that and you just pass on a little bit of advice, like with, with, with the caveat that I'm not an expert, you know, I, you know, but I was just mirroring what I was told when I, I played it, what coaches told me what to do. And it just worked. And I thought, oh, that is brilliant. It was a really, and he was so happy. Good old Charlie O'Brien. Cricket comes up a bit in your art, and I think we'll, we'll come to that in a bit. But um, where I saw a, a similarity uh, between your career and potentially a professional cricketer's career is in the sense that you can quite suddenly become instantly recognisable as an actor. And and I'm not saying that it was instantly the case with Sea Change, obviously, Blue Heelers and a number of other projects before that. But, but Sea Change makes you a, uh, the sort of person who people see and go you're that guy from that show that everybody is watching i mean sea change had a profound effect on <laughs> the culture whenever i think of it i had a friend who tragically passed away a few years ago but whenever we go to lunch together she'd speak almost exclusively in sea change quotes and you know i i think about a cricketer you mentioned manus before like manus went from being someone who you couldn't pick out of a police lineup perhaps 18 months ago to being one of the most recognizable faces in, in the cricketing world and and i, I think that there are parallels there between sports people and actors that have their big break where everybody knows who they are and how their life changes. How was that for you? How was that experience when you became somebody that the entire country seemingly um, wanted a piece of for a while there? Well, um, <laughs> um, I went to the Boxing Day test. I think it was a South African one. Not uh, when Sea Chain was very popular and the ABC just got me in to have a chat during the rain break. And Keith Stapwell was looking at me. Yeah, he, he didn't have any idea who I was. And uh, you know, Jim McLaughlin, you know, he's on that show about the little town. And Keith Stapwell goes, oh, Bally Kiss Angel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't matter where I'm from. You know, okay, yeah. And, you know, um, and you know, people always mistook me for other people, which was always very handy. So you never got a really big head. I mean, the... Even, even like the the other year, last year, I was at the local Bunnings down on the peninsula here, and this bloke was just, you're the fellow off the TV, aren't you? I'm going, oh, Jesus, man. I said, yeah, sometimes. He said, no, don't tell me you are. I know you are. I know you are, you are, mate. I'm going, oh, my God, can you just stop it? And you can't say, can you stop it? You've got to sort of take it on the chin. He's going, no, you're in that cop shit. You're bloody, no, you're Paul Cronin. <laughs> I'm thinking, fuck off. Paul Cronin. <laughs> Jesus, I was in nappies when he was acting. Um, and, you know, when Blue Heelers was fantastic. Because I used to catch, I used to live in West Footscray, and I'd catch uh, a bus in to Channel HSV7 where it was, you know, over in South Melbourne. And um, it'd go past the Remand Centre in Spencer Street there, and this woman would get on and she would stare at me and she would just scowl. And I thought, what the, what's going on here, man? This is really a bit much. 
So I'm sitting there and I'd get on and I'd, she'd get on. And then she came up to me once and she sort of came up and she smiled. She said, I just realised who you are. And I said, yes. She said, I thought you was a screw. Because <laughs> <laughs> my husband's in there. But you're the bloke off the TV. I said, yes. She says, can you give him an autograph? I said, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> no. On the back of a ticket. <laughs> Bizarre. You know, it's weird. When I thought you were a real copper, I hated you, but now I know you're a fake one, I think you're great. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there was another woman who was just not... She was uh, lived in the same street, and I don't know... She was having a bit of trouble at home, and she went to the neighbours, and uh, she said, can you just can I just come in here? And, and, and the, um, my neighbour... He said, sure, sure, please. I've just out. I'm sorry. He said, you should have gone next door. He said, I can't go next. That's the policeman. <laughs> it was my house. <laughs> I mean, you know, people now, people sort of, rec- I'm amazed they recognise me, quite frankly. I mean, sea change is 20 years ago and about 20 kilograms ago, you know, and I was running along the beach down down here just before my knees went. Um, and this guy looked, I mean, he went to the Tony Abbott School of uh, Physical Pride. You know, he, he was doing burpees. <laughs> and I thought, do people still do burpees? I think, man, I think that, oh, that's many, many years ago when you used to do burpees. And he ran up to me, and I'm sort of chugging along, and then he turned round to run backwards. Oh, God. And he was looking at me, and I went, how you going? And he said, sea change. That was a long time ago. And he just blasted <laughs> off. And I thought, fucking bastard, I'll tell you. And I'm hobbling along, you know, like, like a bloody old pacer that's just done a fetlock. The way I was brought up, and my brother and my sisters, it was always, you know, don't have tickets on yourself. Do not showboat. That was another thing. I mean, I remember Martin Kent came down when I was in the juniors and he just sort of you know, a bit of advice and, you know, we were asking because he was a Shield player and he said, never, ever, ever, when you get given out, even if you don't think you're out, you just go and then you get to the dressing room and then you can throw your bat and you can have a cry, you can do anything but when the umpire gives you out, you know, you just go and it was like that, you don't showboat, you know, you just sort of, you know, you just accept it, that, that people want a bit of fun and you move on with it but it, it's, it's more funny, you know, I, my first book, I wrote. I remember you talking about sea change, Adam. It was like uh, I was signing this book that you know it was went well, which was a surprise for everyone. And so I was doing the signing at this bookshop in Leichhardt in Sydney, and there was a huge you know I did all the uh, the the signing queue, uh, and this woman, obviously a professional of some sort, she's in a business suit and had a briefcase and she had a book and she said look I love sea change and I said oh well thanks very much she said you were so much better than the other guy <laughs> and I watched it. usually it was the other way around when, when I when I was on the when I was when I got the when they asked me to do it mm. I told my wife she said oh that's one like you've ruined for me I can't watch it now because it's just awful you know <laughs> great Sarah thank you <laughs> and um because usually it was, I had women, old women coming, not old women, but, you know, these sort of eastern suburban sort of dreadnoughts of people coming up and said, I'm an ABC and I don't like you. Mm-hmm. You've ruined that show. I'm like, oh, all right. Where's Diver Dan? I'm sorry, Diver Dan's not on the show anymore. <laughs> yeah. But this woman came up and so I thought, oh, wow, fuck. Bit of love for Will. And she says, yeah, I just, uh, he's awful. I didn't, I don't, I don't like him. I don't like him at all. You were, you were great. And I said, oh, he's a terrific actor. 
Uh, and she said, no, I see he's got that big hairy chest and those piggy blue eyes and that sort of silly hair and he's a big, he reminds me of a big private school bully. And I looked at her and I thought, she's talking about yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> she's talking about me. And I'm thinking, what doesn't she understand, you know? Man's got to have a hobby by William McGuinness, not David Wenham. And I said, well, would you like me to sign it uh, to you in my character's name? He said, David, that'd be wonderful. I'd love to buy the band to sign my book. I went, sure, okay. You mentioned that mid-70s period. We noticed that the acknowledgements of apparently all of your books have Rick McCosker in them. Um, is it, was he just a particularly formative <laughs> character? I oh, know I loved Rick McCosker. I just, I, we, we were stopped uh, by a, a teacher and he said, get the boys into the, into the library. And it was just two classes. And he said, this is, this, is, this is the spirit of cricket. And Rick McCosker came out in the 77 test with his, you know, his head and his jaw swollen and bandaged. Was it swathed in bandages? Mm, that's always the word. Has to and be swathed. And I just, he, he, but it was great. Like he had those funny, that sort of little gait he had, and he's that you know the baggy green looked all a bit like a like a little boy's a cap on his head because he was like a bit like the mummy, and he jaw was out like that. And the first ball he got was a bouncer, and he hooked it. And I thought, man, that is. Just, I just loved that, and I've always thought, you know, what a fella. But I just and everyone applauded, and I thought that was a. You know, one of those things that you think, yeah, Rick McCoskey is good enough for me. So I, he was uh, my brother. He was doing a um, <laughs> he was doing a, a benefit night, a, a fundraising night at St Greg's out at Campbelltown. My brother, my boy, my ne- my nephew went there, and he went up to him and he said, "Listen, can you just sign something for my uh, for my brother?" And he said, "He's your brother." He said, "I, you know, William McGuinness. He's an actor. He writes books." He says, "He's a bugger that writes about me. <laughs> I've heard about this." And he just sort of sent me this note saying, "You better stop impersonating me, or you'll be in big trouble. I'll get Bob Willis <laughs> onto you." And, I, and he he sent me a really lovely letter after he read Cricket Kings, the book I wrote about cricket. And just what a gent, you know. It's so great. Like I met Ian Chappell last year, which was such a thrill. You know, at a at a lunch, uh, and you know, it's terrible. I did this thing once with Mark Taylor when I met him at a Channel Nine after party at the Logies, and it fucked me sideways. It was excruciating. I mean, in my mind, me and Mark were, you know, we're besties. Oh, I was just a blithering idiot, you know. It was so. I actually ended up running out of there because he just he's basically, I think he just wanted me to fuck off. It was so embarrassing um, because I'd had a couple anyway. Um, so you just turned into a bloody idiot, you know. You, you, you know, you're so excited. But Ian Chappell was so great, you know. It was such a, a relief in a way to meet one of your boyhood heroes and a hero just because of the sort of guy he is, um, the way he's gone about his life. Uh, and he was such a terrific, just a great guy to have lunch with and he was very generous and he was very funny and I thought, thank God, you know, he's, as, he's still as much a of a hero in real life as, as he is in you know, your imagination. Well, you're following in, in his footsteps in some respects here, William. He was on our show. We spent about 90 minutes with Ian about 18 months ago. We went up to his house and it, that certainly mirrors our experience. He was wonderful to us and went into great depth on all these topics. That I mean, I know he gets, he's been in the public eye for a long time post his playing career, but um, he was one of our best guests, an absolute chairman. 
that Rick McCosco episode, that incident you mentioned at the MCG, my dad was there that day. It was his first day oh, really? ever at the MCG for, for a test match. It was the third day of the centenary test, um, the day when um, David Hooks hits his five fours. Oh, wow. Consecutively off Tony Gregg. And he remembers sitting at the top of what was then the Western Stand and, and uh, looking down at the Southern Stand where when he when he did hook the first ball after walking out mummified, um, the, the the then Bay 13 sung Waltzing McCosca. But, oh, yeah, um, I know. I love that. That just was the bomb. I mean, he, it was so down home too. And he just looked so, oh, I don't really, I don't make a fuss or anything. And he, because... He wasn't a superstar. Like, he's a terrific cricketer, but he wasn't a superstar. And it was just like, that's what's so great about cricket. A big theme of your book, Fatherhood, was cutting people slack. And I found this really interesting, actually, as a theme you, you return to in quite a few of your essays. When cricket's the complete antithesis of that in many respects as a sport, I mean, it's such a lonely game, you know, it's geared towards failure. And I mean, that's picked up also in Cricket Kings, I suppose, with these individual stories of why we put ourselves through the, the rigmarole. Why do we subject ourselves to paying to turn out on a hot Saturday afternoon? Um, you know, maybe you are too short like you are in Cricket Kings. Maybe you are dragging in people to, to make up the numbers. And maybe it's a thoroughly brutal experience, yet... We return to it time and time again, even though cricket doesn't really cut anyone any slack. Well, that's that's, that's the great quality about it. I mean, it's that's why I say that's just like life. I mean, sometimes things don't go your way. Sometimes you've you're given out when you're not out. You know you haven't hit it, but you can't stand there and bitch about it and moan. You just go, you know, and you think, oh well. And it teaches you, you know, life's like that. You know, it's a funny thing. Like you know, people want their kids to be happy and you think oh, well, give, them a, give them pills to take you know because life's not going to make them happy all the time and if it was going to make them happy all the time then it wouldn't be happiness you know it wouldn't be that elated feeling of joy and life you know you, you lose a bit of bark off life it comes up and it does some terrible things to you and you know you just got to live through that and there is a lot of not a lot of justice in cricket a lot of the time but you can have little victories, you know. You can draw a game. I do like the idea that we took their game and we made it our game. And I love the fact that there is an Australian way of playing it, just as there is a New Zealand way or a South African way or a West Indian way or a Indian way or a Pakistani way, you know. Um, and I like the fact that uh, it still means something uh, to, to Australians. It's not just a fusty old relic of another white Australia, if you like, like of the 1950s, or Don Bradman. I mean, you know, I mean, he was, my dad always said Don Bradman was, um, as a, a magician, just a maestro, but, you know, you wouldn't want to have a beer with him, you know. He loved guys like Stan uh, McCabe and Ken Mackay, you know, and Richie, my mum loved Richie Benno, you know, with his shirt unbuttled down to his ankles, you know, stuff like that, you know. It was just, and, you know, that many <laughs> many in chapel. love Richie Benno? <laughs> Oh, Richie God, Benno, man. Had a, he, had a, he had a presence, tell you what. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, no, that whole thing. He's very French, you know, Richie Benno, my father would say. Look, he mm. dresses up. Look, he dresses like a French bloke, doesn't he? One of the wonderful, wonderful sort of listening to Ian Chappell when I had lunch with him at this sort of charity thing. And he's, he's still talking like that all the time. And the thing I say, you know, he's that, that way he's got of talking, it's like you start giggling. And... Um, Richie Benno, we were, my son and I were having a breakfast just the other day and we were talking about favourite commentary, commentary moments. 
And it's that one which you know is, this is Flintoff, and then Hayden monsters him, and that is Hayden. You know, that great. <laughs> and the, the, the best one I love of all was when War was captain, Steve War was captain, and they were playing uh, New Zealand, I think it was New Zealand, over in Perth, and they, you know, Richie Benno was rolling with <laughs> Craig. <laughs> and he said, call it an old captain's hunch, Tony, but I think something's on here. Oh, surely not, Richie, can't be that. Uh, no, Richie, no way, they've put, they put the bottle away now. Not a... And this sort of good-length ball comes up to Gilchrist and he just hits it over the, you know, the Swan River, and there's this silence, and then you hear Richie, Richie Benner go, hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's just perfect. <laughs> hello. Oh, well, Richie might have had something there. <laughs> you know, that stupid bloody thing, him, him and his weather wall, Tony Gregg, and, you know, mm. the old ABC coverage, you know, Norman May. Where's that one gone? That's four. Oh, he's out. You know, they, it's like he's silly. And that great thing when David Lloyd got hit by Jeff Thompson in that 74, 75, he just, he, had the, oh, he just boxes into the pitch. And Norman Mike goes, well, that's a nasty one. <laughs> <laughs> and guys like fucking Fred Truman, you know, Giamani, Giamani, what a cat. And that other guy, that English fast bowler who taught it, um, he taught out at Carey or Wesley, I think. Frank Tyson. Frank Tyson. 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 Yeah. Oh, my God. There's this guy who looks like he's had a Midsummer Murders. <laughs> there is the drama. The pitch. <laughs> it's, like, it's like my brother and I still say that to each other. There is the drama. The pitch. You say it. You're having a beer. You're out having a meal. It's just they just hang with you, you know. There's a commentary moment that pops up in one of your books that I had to ask you about where you're at the drive-in cinema and you're watching the movie Alien oh. with, with Sigourney Weaver and it's getting towards the climactic point and your mate who's in the car listening to the, the movie Ricky audio Keel. coming in through the radio, he says, no, fuck it, I want to listen to the, the cricket. Australia's playing the, the West Indies. So, so he switches it over and there's a quote from you which is perhaps one of the greatest quotes I've ever read in the English language that says, uh, perhaps now's the time to bring Lily back into the attack, said Sigourney as she clenched a blaster, sounding uncannily like Jim Maxwell, <laughs> because the, the two streams have just lined up at the right moment <laughs> and suddenly you've it got Jim so in there funny. in the midst of Alien. Yes, and he's coming in the holding and that thing <laughs> and at the end Ricky, and he had a golden Tirana. I mean, well, got, it was a, it was an iridescent gold. You know, if if Pussy Galore drove a car, it would be that golden Tirana. And mm-hmm. at the end, when the you know the credits are going up, and you know Australia have won by about six runs, Willie, I think Lily got uh, holding out, and he's beeping the horn. Going, that's a fucking good movie, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I had a rugby coach who used to call me Hardtop. And I used to think, oh, that's a pretty good name, you know, because, you know, Hardtop, yeah. I must be a hard player. And, you know, I was a second rower. And I went through, you know, we were having a social at the, at the club. Um, and I said, Max, why do you call me Hardtop? He said, well, you know, you're like a Hardtop Cortina. Well, you, you look good, but you run like a piece of shit. <laughs> I said before we'd, we'd come back to where cricket fitted into your work and we sort of touched on it with um, with some of your writing but um, 
I was trying to show my girlfriend the other night my favourite Australian film, which is Look Both Ways, and I was saying, you've got to watch Oh, this you're film. a good she's, man. Because she's going to, she's coming to Adelaide with me in, in um, for the Adelaide test this year, and um, I go, you've got to watch this film. Talking to William McInnes on, on Monday, you know, this is the right time. And unfortunately, you can't stream it over here, but one part of that film, which I bloody love, is the cricket scene, which... In some ways, is incongruous. A bloke receives a, a you know a, a cancer diagnosis on Friday afternoon, and you know the story of that weekend that follows, and then it, you know that, that he would go out and play cricket on a Saturday afternoon, and obviously it doesn't go too well for the character in question getting out last, and you know the team losing the game and all the rest of it. But I thought it was just a lovely way of reinforcing that this is just what we do. Whether things are good, whether things are bad. If you're a park cricketer and it's Saturday afternoon and it's the middle of summer, well. That's what we do. We, we turn out on a, on a Saturday afternoon. So that, I've always really enjoyed that scene. Um, I guess my question, though, is that how did it end up in the film? And two, how did you shoot it? Because so many times you, you, you see these fictional cricket scenes in films and they're fucking terrible. Um, and this from, this, uh, uh, and you, I, I reflect on the, 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 the Bodyline miniseries. Some of those scenes are cringeworthy. Oh, um, man. With Hugo Weaving, Gary Sweet. You think about, oh, there's, there's some... Um, the, the Midsummer uh, Murders one where, where he hits this ball straight to the guy at short cover and then they go for a single and the bloke doesn't even throw the ball in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, there's, there's, nobody's going to do that. There's a great scene on Downton Abbey as well where, as it happens, Jim Carter, who's, who's the former president of my club over here, and he, he, uh, he was recruiting players for it and took our opening bowler to be the bowler in that scene. But that's another terrible scene as far as the actual watching. It's bizarre, of, so how, isn't it? How did, you, how did you do it and why did you do it? Uh, I guess is my, my double-barrel question, a long way of getting there. Well... I played, I did this thing in Perth called, uh, it was a Robert Drew um, shark net. And I was over there for half a summer doing this thing. And I ended up playing for Williton. So that was fun. That was, they were another great bunch of blokes. They had a, their, the, the, the 50th anniversary of the club and I flew over there. I thought, yeah, I'll go over. That was fun. And I wrote, wrote this book. And I read out my figures. I got. This is why I love cricket. There's like a hall full of these, you know, all the we're all, you know, a bit boozy. So they get me up on stage and they're talking to me. I said, "I'm going to read out your figures for the season." Well, I said, "Yeah." So you got 140 runs, which is very good for a number seven. I said, "Yeah." I, you know, I sort of tonked a few. And he said, "And the bowling figures, because you were a bowler." I said, "Yes." He said, "One for 257." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah," but who here dropped a catch off my bowling? And the entire room put their hands up. It was, it was brilliant. But we were playing a game over there and it was really incredibly hot and it was we couldn't win um, and, you know, we, we just had to sort of block out. We, we, we couldn't give an out. We, we'd lost it because it was only a limited overs, but you got double, you got extra points if you bowled the team out. So... We were just trying not to get bowled out, and I was batting with this guy who um, he wasn't. He didn't have a diagnosis or anything, but he just had some trouble with his uh, his partner, and he was just really miserable. And you could just see we were just so uh, blocking, and he could just see all of a sudden he just went, you know, fuck this for a game of soldiers, and he just tried to hit the ball, and he got out, and he just walked off, and he went, I don't know why I did that. I just couldn't, you know, I just had to do something, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, and there was another thing, like I can remember out of nowhere that day, it was silence. It was very hot and it was really incredibly hot. And so you're sort of drenched in your, 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 your sweat, you know, you're standing there and there's no noise. Maybe, you know, like it all meters into the background of, you know, you know, mowing, someone mowing their lawn, dogs barking, a kid crying out maybe. 
And then there was this huge crash, a massive crash. And some guy had just lost his car going around the corner and he'd just driven into the, the, the park, uh, the park's fence. And he's, and it was like, a, no one did anything. We all just turned and we looked and then we went back to the cricket. <laughs> Uh, and life goes on. And I told my wife that, and she said, that's really interesting. And she said, and she was writing this scene, and she said, I'm going to put that cricket match in. I said, yes, yeah, great idea. Uh, and so that she sort of wanted that idea that this guy was facing um, his, you know, his, and we, we all know part of us that we're going to die. But, you know, you've been told that it's going to happen sooner maybe for you. And then he's just told out to go and just block it. Just stay there. And so that's where that came from. Right. I'm glad you like that film, though. But it's a weird thing, cricket. I mean, I, I, can, what I, I tried to write that book, that cricket book, because I thought, I want, I want to celebrate cricket like the Yanks celebrate baseball, you know. Like, I, I love The Natural. I love that fucking film. My God. I mean, I love sports movies. You know, that's what I've been doing in lockdown. I, you know, I even like For the Love of the Game, that bloody awful Kevin Costner baseball film. He's a pitcher and he's got one last game. It's almost a really good <laughs> film, but I just wanted to write a book that was like that showed how much people loved cricket or, or, or how much of a a part of the of, of the suburban backdrop it was. Uh, that's what I and I quite liked. I mean, I I quite liked that book. I mean, some of it's a bit sort of try hard. Like, no, I mean, I'm not a great writer, and you know, since I just, sometimes I, I write really quickly and I just sort of there it is, go. And you think, you know, when you read it, uh, when I remember reading some of it, I thought, oh, fuck, I could have tried a bit harder there. But there's, I, there's enough in that book that makes me really happy I wrote it. I mean, I like the, the way that, you know, that shared communal feeling of a cricket ground, a suburban cricket ground, like people go there, they walk their dogs, and then it becomes the cricketers, and then it becomes the football players when cricket season ends. So I like that. Um, it's a tell you, funny thing, I tell you, I don't know if you've noticed this in bloody lockdown, the number of times Taken and Rambo has been on. That's a weird thing, you know. It's just, it's just really fucked with my head. I says, is Rambo on again? You know, and then you'd look at it for the 10th time and you'd have a couple of drinks and then you'd really think, this is, this is like a comedy. This is like a goddamn comedy. You know, this little guy who should be like a, a halfback, muscle-bound halfback, going, and the other one, Taken, I suddenly realised, do you know his name, Liam Neeson's name in that? You know, it's not no. like James Bond. It's Brian Mills. <laughs> what a name for an action hero. That's, yep. that's, that's a sort of off-spinner that Mark War toyed with, you know? That's <laughs> <laughs> it's Kyle Mills' dad. And he sort of looks a bit like yeah, an Kyle accountant Mills. as well, Liam Neeson. Like, you don't, you don't look at Liam Neeson and think, God, he's an intimidating man. But if you look at when he runs, like I, I looked at that film and I love when actors try and run. You know, they've got that sort of... Tom Cruise does that movie star mm. run where he runs like that. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Craig does it too. Like they're little people trying to run like, you know, Mel Meninga. Um, but Liam Neeson, you, if you look at Liam Neeson when he's going off to the Arab Sheik's barge to sort of finally get his daughter back, he runs like he's a medium pacer. He, like, like, he runs like Derek Pringle. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger Moore, Roger Moore, Roger Moore runs like Phil Tufnell. If you watch, you watch him in the karate out for the man with the golden gun, he runs like Phil Tufnell. And you know, Graham Gooch, it's like that funny thigh-chafing sort of Lady Diana, sort of Princess Diana way of running. 
Derek Pringle, another former guest on the final word as well. I hope you know, uh, Will. <laughs> we had Derek on last year when, uh, when Essex won the double, Jeff. <laughs> It's a great name, Derek Pringle. I love, I love the way that some guys, like you and Chatfield, could never come from anywhere but New Zealand. You know, <laughs> you and Chatfield. <laughs> Derek Pringle. I, Brian Mills. I have a particular set of skills. I will find you. I will kill you if you hit me for sex. <laughs> but I just feel he, he's more of a... Brian Mills is... He's, he used to work at the ATO and now he's set up his own firm. You know, I've got a particular set of skills that involves setting up Excel spreadsheets to automate your deductions. Um, we, we, can, we can roll the depreciation of your existing assets into next year's financial year. Like, that's what Brian Mills is up to, surely. I know, Brian, it's the weirdest name. I mean, I know Bruce Willis is called John McLean, but, they, you know, John McLean played, he played for Queensland. He was a wicketkeeper. Yeah. He was one of the great McLeans of, of uh, you know, of, uh, rugby fame. But every action movie was called John in the 80s. They were all John. John John Matrix in Commando, John McLean, John Connor, John John Rambo. Like, you had to be John. You couldn't be anything other. If every character Chuck Norris has ever played has been called John, I'm pretty sure. I think uh, if, you were, if you were batting with Sylvester Stallone, it would be entertaining, you know. <laughs> I remember getting run out by uh, a guy... He he had recreationally enhanced. This is when I was playing for Emerald Hill, and they, as he said, I just got stuck into the Boliv- the Bolivian staminade, which basically means he, you know, he came out, and it was like we made um, we made Rick Darling and Graham Wood look like uh, a pair of synchronised swimmers. Though so it was yes, yes, no, yes, come on, no, no, back, yes, oh, come on, oh, I'm sorry, mate. That's show business, you know. <laughs> That's show business. <laughs> He's a now. That's what they used to give on World of Sport. Don't go, don't you, go, you don't, uh, you won't leave empty-handed. You've got the Adidas shoes, the Adidas bag, the Hutton's footy pants, and uh, the staminade and the tang. The tang, of course, has been to the moon and back, and your power sticks also. You know, and here's a dinner for two voucher for Dirty Dick's Tavern. Enjoy that, will you? Yeah, thanks very much. You know, <laughs> staminade. Mick Vivers was uh, Tom Vivers' uh, cousin. He was an he was an offer you played for Australia, but he'd do the cricket, and uh, he was so dull. Tom Vivers, <laughs> it's like he was really terrible. He had a comb over and all that, and he talked like that all the time. Well, Australia Queensland cricket, a very exciting game. Keith Dudgeon, Ian Side, both got amongst the rungs, and Sam Samming Sam Trimble also a uh, rousing fifty there at the Gabba in the afternoon session. <laughs> Section. I remember I used to love that's when I used to love Sheffield Shield cricket when I you know you'd just be mad you would be mad for it you'd be mad and guys like Keith Dudgeon Ian Seib what a name <laughs> as well like, Ian was, it, was Australia just eternally asleep throughout those few decades it just sounds like everyone's just trying to put each other to bed Sam Trimble came out and he wore uh Chocolate batting gloves that had cutouts. I'm not. It's 73. And, uh, I saw Garth McKenzie make 63. It was a great afternoon because we, you know, you, people would go. You'd get about eight thousand, maybe even ten thousand people at the Gabba for a really good state game. Marjid Khan was playing there, and Chapel. I remember Greg Chapel walking out, um, and he, I couldn't get over the fact he didn't look like Ian Chapel. And I said to my dad, I said, he doesn't look like Ian, does he? And my dad said this great thing. Yeah, look at the way he walks. 
thought he's going to be up his ass about something. <laughs> I thought, he, yeah, yeah, he does have a be up his ass about something. He's a beautiful player, but he's got to be up his ass about something, and it's true. Phil Carlson was another there guy for a very long time. <laughs> Yeah. I, I was going to I was going to ask you like all these relatively serious questions about how you know how unfinished sky and how it relates to kind of how harsh Australia can be and you know playing curtain and and about you know to the extent to which cricket kings may have uh, may or may not have been autobiographical you know roping in a, a kid to play and fill in for the team and all that but let's forget about that just tell us about going to the Gabba in the seventies when the Casuarinas were there and when it was a different like growing up in growing up in Queensland and going to the Gabba in that era, people say it was one of the most special grounds in the world to attend. Obviously it's a disaster these days, but talk us through a day at the Gabba in the seventies. There was the dog track, um, which was just bizarre really. I just thought every cricket ground had a dog track, you know. <laughs> and the hoardings. <laughs> I can remember going there uh, and watching uh, Barry Lyndon was a film, and they were advertising it at at the, at the Gabba. Um, and he sounds like a shield wild. player, you know. Barry Lyndon made an excellent Barry forty-two Lyndon, for know, South Australia. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Barry Lyndon, the dashing Barry Lyndon, coming the <laughs> elegant left-hander. Yeah, um, and they, uh, the great Gabba story, of course, is uh, when there was a dog called Skylights running. Um, <laughs> it's. <laughs> Uh, and uh, they had the highlights and the racer and Skylights is running away with this one. Ah, oh, Christ alive, he stopped to drop a Tosca. And the d- dog stopped and dropped a crap. But this guy <laughs> said, Christ alive, he stopped to drop a Tosca. And the Tosca was a chocolate bar. I mean, mm. and my father's saying, that's a very, that's, 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 uh, that's Skylights Park over there. It's where he, dropped a, he stopped to drop a Tosca. I can remember in 83, actually, having a beer with Keith Miller during the, the Ashes test. And Norman Cowens was bowling. It was about day three or four. And he was sort of standing looking and he said, you look like you're thirsty, young fella. And I said, yeah, I'm going to have a beer. He said, I'd love one. I was sure. This is Keith Miller. I bought, he, he wanted Fosters. They had a can of Fosters. And I remember having a beer with Keith Miller. Now, that was incredible. And he he was a bit of a he was a bit of a you know he's, he would have been in, into his sixties then I think well early sixties perhaps but he my god he looked like a rooster great looking bloke <laughs> the way the way he even stood it was amazing and I bought him a beer and I thought I bought I went and bought that bloke a beer from the commentary team and they said what beer did he want he said he wanted a Foster's and someone said he's been living in England too long he's forgotten what Australian <laughs> beer tastes like. <laughs> but it was a great, you know, there was a, the, the scoreboard, I remember, by the hill, uh, and Chico Rolls, and the chips were very, you had the chips in the in the waxy paper when I was a kid. You know, we'd go, and sometimes later when I was at high school, you'd you'd go in and, you know, you'd, you'd watch the final session of a, of, a, of, a, of a match. It was, uh, I love the Gabba. And, you know, I love the Gabba because... It was so Queensland. I mean, because it was special. No one, no, 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 no other cricket ground had a dog track. No, no other ground, not even Lords, was the place where Skylights stopped to drop a Tosca <laughs> in the straight. You know, I loved it because it was the Tide Test too, and that was particularly Queensland. I was so proud the Queensland of the Tide Test because um, you talked. 
Adam about that, that cricket uh, thing and uh, being autobiographical. He was really quite heavily autobiographical. Uh, like, I mean, I'm not that good a writer, make up stuff, but I've played with a lot of wicket keepers. I had this guy, the wicket keeper was always farting in that book. Yeah. And he sometimes farted as his appeals. And every wicket keeper I played with thought it was about them. <laughs> and we did have one guy who was, um, he was a, an English teacher. Uh, and he was he always tried to have a new language. So he taught his kids to say a new language. So the appeal, the appeal in the book, how you'd appeal in a different language is real life. We would appeal. We would appeal in Mandarin or German, you know. There's a guy played with at Yarraville called Greg Morgan, who is just one of my, he's a great mate of mine. I, I just love him, you know. He's uh, mad St Kilda. You know, he talks like one of those guys who talk like that all the time. He doesn't say, you know, g'day, William. He goes, WGM McGuinness, how are you? <laughs> he talks in scorebook talk, you know. <laughs> and at the end of the phone line, the bulldog goes, he doesn't say, well, see you later. He goes, well, good luck out there. <laughs> the funniest guy. He's just, you could not make him up. And we go to the Bradman narration when we can. Uh, and we saw Froggy Thompson there. You know, Froggy mm-hmm. Thompson. And I had to be with Froggy Thompson. And I said, mate, I can remember you, you know, bowling against the English in 71. He said, yeah, 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 how tall are you? I said, I'm oh, 6'4". He said, oh, I used to be 6'4". You're taller than me now. I said, well, you know. I said, you never bloody happened to bowling on boxing that day, did you? And I said, no, Mr. Thompson, I never did. <laughs> Even bloody. It was such fun, you know. I mean, I'm a bit iffy about Justin Langer. You know, he, the meditation, I think it was the same guy that taught us meditation at drama school. This guy called Derek, and he used to be a uh, – he used to talk like that hmm, all the time. Hmm? He was a dancer from the Royal Ballet. Hmm? But then he went to the Himalayas, hmm? and he learnt meditation. Hmm? And I think, you know, because I was listening to buddy Barry Cassidy talk to buddy <laughs> JL on the – on you know, and he said, and I went home, and I went, and I, I, I looked in the paper – and, you know, there's a boat in Netherlands teaching people how to meditate. You know, I think, <laughs> JL, that's the guy I went to. <laughs> he was bizarre. He spoke, Justin Langer spoke at the, the first Bradman one I went to, to lunch. He spoke so well about the first ball he faced in Test cricket and how, uh, I think it was Kirtley Ambrose, it might have been Courtney Walsh, who played that Adelaide Test that we just lost. Mm. And he said the only thing he thought about going through, he says, I don't want to let my mum and dad down. I thought, that is so sweet. You know, it's bizarre, but I think, yeah, I guess it must be like that, you know. Hmm. He's a bit sort of, to... uh, oh, you'd go on. So no, I was a libelous then. He's a bit like a Presbyterian Jedi, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> you think? Don't you, you think? I mean, I like it's my mum. It's my mum said about Matthew Hayden. You know, like he couldn't he couldn't be anything but a Kilcoy Catholic. Look at him, <laughs> King Roy Catholic. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, I had. <laughs> I had some quite profound question I was going to ask you, but it doesn't really fit. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd been. I wanted to ask you about. This. So Robert Wilson, who's the novelist who wrote Eureka Street, he wrote this. He lives in Paris, and after they had that shooting there in the nightclub a few years ago, he wrote this beautiful piece about 
living in Paris in grief and watching cricket from Australia and finding something optimistic in, in the quality of the light and, and finding this soothing nature in cricket. And you write a lot about grief in, in your various books and I was interested in that idea about whether whether sport is any use to grief or whether it's so trivial that it doesn't have any relationship with it at all. Well, I mean, it's a part... The thing about um, cricket in Australia, I think, just mentioning that um, that test that Justin Lehner played in and we lost you know, when, you know, McDermott got out. I was going off to... I, I, I was going off to meet this uh, marriage celebrant because uh, Sarah and my wife, well, we were getting married and she was going to marry us. And I was listening to the cricket... And I thought, I'm not going to get out of this car because we might win this. And I noticed that a guy in front, because there was a lot of traffic because there'd been an accident, and I, I was somewhere near Alexander Parade in Melbourne, and I noticed this guy just indicating. And I thought, he, does he not know his indicator's on? And I suddenly realised he has left it on because he's listening to the cricket too. And it was so exciting it was so amazing. I was so enthralled. I ended up just staying in the car, driving around because I didn't want to get out of the car and I couldn't get to the marriage celebrant. So I went, I had dinner at my uh, future in-laws and Sarah came out and she said, did you listen to the cricket? Wasn't it exciting? You know, how great was that? One run. And I thought, oh my God, that's so amazing that she was, you know, sharing the same thing I was sharing. And um, it's sort of, that's it connect the game connects people like that and it even if you don't like cricket a game like that has this overarching effect so that it becomes more than just the background of of a season it, it becomes a celebration of of just living um and i think you know when Sarah died that's one of the things i remembered about you know when you can't get over someone dying, someone you love and someone you think is going to uh, really be with you for, for, for both of your lives. And that effect, you know, of uh, her death, it, it never ever uh, diminishes. It's, you know, it just you feel the grief less. But when you feel it, it is so uh, painful and um, I was talking to my son uh, just oh, before lockdown um, and he was just sort of going through his gear. You know, he was getting rid of some bats and he was just sort of, you know, doing some shadow batting and he just said, I can remember mum cuddling me when I got out at Xavier for a duck and it was my first game in the firsts for year 10. And she actually made me feel, and he just said, he wasn't making much sense. He said, should I miss her? <laughs> Come here, you know. Um, and it's something that's not just a sport. It's a part of our lives. And you're taken out of yourself. It means Australia. And that light is true, the, the, the glory. And there's no other place like Australia for light. It's like... Um, like the, it's a box and the lid's been lifted off. It's so beautiful, the light here. I can remember standing in front of Notre Dame. 
cathedral. And this woman said, can you move, please? And I was looking around, it was an Australian voice. I'm like, what the fuck? Could you move out of the way? She was across the street, you know. And she said, listen, I don't mind brothers, but I'm from Redlands and you just scream Brisbane and I just want to take a shot of the cathedral. I had a past brother's rugby top and I said, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> and then we were talking about, um, I went over and said sorry, we were laughing. And she said, it's such a beautiful, it's so beautiful. But she sort of talked about the light not being the same. Um, but, you know, cricket is, it's a part of Australia. It's, you know, I love, there are so many levels I love cricket on and you can get emotional about it. I mean, I love that car coming when you played in the streets, yeah. car coming and you'd wheel it back and, you know, we used to, you know, my backyard, I mean, we're going up there one Christmas. Um, it was years after my dad had died. And uh, we were all having just, you know, this great game of backyard cricket and we had an Elvis was, an, you know, one of those Elvis shower curtains that were popular for a while. He was the auto wiki. If you know, if you hit Elvis, you were out. You know, you sniffed it, and then Mum said, "Oh, I know," because she'd given everyone a shower curtain with Elvis on it. And of course, we had a slips cordon of Elvises. It was just <laughs> so fantastic. It was so fantastic, you know, like one from a movie singing "Return to Sender," one with his like flaming. I even know the bloody films, "Flaming Star." You know, it was. Uh, it was so fun and Acapulco was another Elvis, but he was, it was so much fun. And it was like the kids, you know, our partners, our wives uh, and, the, you know, the family I grew up in, and it was all the same backyard. I mean, life doesn't get much better than that. And it's, yeah. it's funny how ingrained cricket is to my idea of Christmas, you know, and even how like that big bash league, I can remember uh, the first year it was, and I loved it. I thought, oh, I don't really, it's shit and giggle, you know. It's a bit of fun. But it became such a part of my idea of Christmas. You know, I used to, you know, two and a half hours and it's fantastic. You just, everything, that that peculiarly Australian thing of you get to about mid-December and everything switches off. If anyone wanted to evade Australia, they'd just do it the Christmas New Year period. Because they wouldn't, the defence forces wouldn't be on. You know, it's, that's that idea that we all just, we just engage in that great big, long, lovely summer. I think that's probably a, a fairly nice place to wrap it up, William McGuinness. It's been a pleasure to take up a whole lot of your time on a Monday evening. Um, thank you very much for joining us on the final word. It's, it's so lovely you asked me to talk shit for <laughs> for way too long. <laughs> I'm supposed to be writing a book, but I don't know. It's the final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Time to say goodbye. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why I just found that very amusing, but something about time to say goodbye. I just, I just pictured you, I don't know, at the opera, <laughs> flowers <laughs> well, thrown at you. It, it's been in my head since uh, the Mark interview the other week, actually, because Mark sort of talks glowingly about Richie Benno's final stint on commentary. So, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows that well, everyone that remembers that test match, rather, would remember that Richie's last bit of calling uh, is Kevin Peterson's wicket on 158. It's, it's 37 people... seconds of silence is what it is. Well, yeah, that, that's right. But the bit... <laughs> it's, it's incredible. The bit before, I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant. He goes, uh, uh, yes, um, well, uh, as I travelled around the world over the last 47 years, I've always uh, carried with me music, and some of my favourite music is made by 
Andrea Bocelli. <laughs> and with Sarah Brightman, he sung the wonderful duet, Time to Say Goodbye. And, well, for me, it's time to say goodbye as well. So, since hearing that Richie Benno piece back in full, I've, I've had that in, in my front of mind as well. So that's the context, Jeffrey. But it is indeed time for us to say goodbye. <laughs> it, it is. Thank you to William McGuinness for spending a, a highly entertaining um, hour and whatever it was with us. Uh, you didn't hear the bit edited out in the middle where his computer ran out of battery and he, he ran around the room trying to plug it in while swearing profusely and then we lost contact and then had to re-establish it and then talked about I don't know what for about 10 minutes before we got back to the interview. But it, it was a whole lot of fun. So um, thank you to William and, and thanks to Bear Producer, our production company, for putting it all together, Jay and DC and Astrid, for doing the job for us as usual. Thanks to our patrons. We had lots of great feedback on the Mark Nicholas interview a couple of weeks ago, which was just lovely. So if you're on our Patreon page, you can DM us at any time. We really enjoy the back and forth. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Get your nerd pledges in. As Jeff mentioned earlier, they've been a great source of support to, to both of us um, throughout the course of this lockdown period. Uh, thanks also to those that have jumped on iTunes and, and rated us and reviewed the show, which, uh, which does make a difference in terms of who gets to listen to the show and the algorithm and all the other bits and pieces that I don't necessarily understand, but I'm reliably informed that make a big difference. And Jeff, again, uh, to our editing team uh, through Bad Producer Productions, uh, it, it's uh, not always straightforward editing us, especially when we have other interviews uh, spliced in like we did today, big interviews which require a lot of listening back and fine-tuning, and, and Dave Collins um, looks after that for us week in, week out. So thank you, DC. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Astrid. Uh, it is a lot of fun working with you guys. And most of all, thank you to you for listening in, because if you didn't, there would be very little point to doing this entire enterprise. This has been the final word it will be the final word again at some point in the future um head back and listen to the calling the shots episode from last weekend that was a lot of fun to listen back through and i know that adam and dan norcross did a million hours of work that i'm glad that i didn't have to do aside from that it'll be easier to listen to than it was to make we'll see you next time we do this show Good night. you know what i meant i had to go about it write it out and find it myself Stories I can tell you